Hello everyone and welcome to episode 330 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers Centre where we have an awesome writing community and some fantastic writing courses. I'm here with my co-host Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series. How are you, Al? I'm okay. Thanks, Val. That's good. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, every week I think I've really got to try better. I've got to come up, try harder, rather, try better. I need to come up with something that's, you know, exciting and thrilling. But, you know, I'm I'm okay. I'm fair to middling. And I think, to be perfectly honest with you, that there's a lot of people out there that will agree with me that yes. in these remarkable times, and also that is a phrase I never want to hear again, in these remarkable times, in these uncertain times, in these mm. difficult times, I think fair unprecedented times, mm. I feel like um, fair to middling and okay is pretty good, really. Pretty darn good, I reckon. Pretty darn good, yeah. Mm. Well, good on so you. So aim for, <laughs> aim for okay. I think that's going to be my new hashtag. Hashtag aim for aim okay. For okay. Oh my God. What do you think? I could almost run an entire campaign on aim for okay. <laughs> I'm all over it. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you're okay. Um, we want to give a big shout out to Hoople555554, interesting mm. handle, who kindly, mm-hmm. kindly left us a five-star rating um, and said, I showed up, it entitled it, I showed up. Hi, Val and Al, just wanted to say a huge thank you for your fantastic podcast. I've just finished the first draft of my YA novel and owe a large part of getting the 69,000 words on the page to Al, who was in my head saying, you got to show up. <laughs> I-G-S-D, which obviously is got certain things done. Thank you. <laughs> mm. Wow. Got certain things done. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's exactly what those letters stand for. Um, <laughs> fantastic. Go Hoopla is all I can say. Yes, or Hoople. Yes, Hoople. Yes, yes. Hoople. Um, I'm so glad I was in your head. I'm a bit scared for you having me in your head. I, know, I hope now have also hashtag aim for okay in your head. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, that's fantastic. 69,000 yeah. words is no mean feat. No, it's not. Getting an entire book down mm. at all is no mean feat. So well done. It's a huge achievement and I hope you're patting yourself on the back yes. and having your reward of choice, which will not be Barnoffy Pie in my <laughs> particular <laughs> set of circumstances, but maybe in your particular set of circumstances. Well, you know, I've got we a new one, We haven't right? talked about Barnoffy for ages. Well, that's because I can't get to Chuckle Charlie's to get my favourite Barnoffy Pie. Um <laughs> I have, as you know, been making scones and I have bought some more buttermilk and um, we'll be making another batch most likely today. So making your own scones has become your reward of choice. Well, kind of. It's not, they don't taste as good. (laughs) 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 But you know what? I would just like to put it out there that you may need to be baking a batch for the 30th of May, Valerie. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, because we're so we excited. are having a party. And if party. you have been a party, if you <laughs> a party, if you have been in the Facebook group of late, you will see that we have popped a little event notice in there. Yes. We are having a block party, party and it will be happening on the 30th of May on Facebook. 
You can find us in the Facebook group together live um, on the 30th of May at 11 a.m. And when we say partay, we mean talk about writing because (laughs) that's how we like to partay. I mean, seriously, do we know how to party or what? Um, But we'll be there. We will be there for an hour to answer your questions. Uh, We talk very fast, so we hope to get quite a few questions in Mm -hmm. um, and respond to those for you directly. Uh, Valerie will clearly be bringing scones. Yep, scones. And um, I will expect to see a frilly apron involved because, you know, (laughs) one knows that one cannot make scones without a frilly apron. And um, I don't know what I'm going to bring yet, but I'll be bringing something, maybe a party hat. Yeah, you've got to bring morning tea as well because it is 11 a.m. So we're going to have our cup of tea and we hope you have your cup of a tea A cup of tea? Too. Yeah, we'll have yes. a cup of tea and we'll have a little bit of uh, bit of morning tea action. Um, I personally mm. will be expecting everyone to dust off their authorial blazers yes. because this is an event and, of mm-hmm. course, we take our events very seriously. When we party, we wear authorial blazers. Yes. Um, <laughs> so we're going to be doing that. And, yes, I – And the or- reason – the reason we're doing it, is, Al, yeah. What's the reason is, why we're doing it? Well, because this <laughs> <laughs> before hashtag ISO life, oh, yeah, we hashtag. were going to be Al and That's I were stupid. going to be on the top floor of the Museum of Contemporary we Art we talked about at this eleven a.m. That's right. I didn't want to bring it. Up. I didn't want to bring it up again because I found it quite depressing. But anyway, let's do it. All right, we yes. will not be on the top floor of the MCA at the mm. Vivid Festival of Ideas, talking about writing with a room of two hundred of you mm-hmm. and some people, some awesome people that we had invited to come along to share the stage with us. So we won't be doing that because no. we can't. So instead, we are doing the next best thing. We will be eating Val's scones <laughs> in a frilly apron in the Facebook group live, talking about writing. But you yeah. know, come join us it's 11 a.m a australian eastern standard time so wherever you are in the world i have no idea what what time that will be for you um i hope it won't be three o'clock in the morning for you uh Mm -hmm. but if it's not three o'clock in the morning and you would like to come eat scones with us then please do very very exciting now i recently did a creative conversation on facebook live with james phelps who is author of the new book Australian Code Breakers and he's Australia's number one best-selling true crime writer because he wrote all of those books about prisons which were you know page turners um, and you can have a listen to him on in the podcast group if you're not already a member of our podcast group make sure you join just search for so you want to be a writer podcast community and request to join we'd love to have you in there it's free to join so my interview on Facebook live is recorded and it's in there it's also over on the Australian Writers Centre blog in case you want to watch it uh, through your browser um, and we'll put the link in the show notes so um, it was it was really fun to interview him and I have some fun facts for you Al. Fun facts you know how much I love a fun fact. Yes. I live for the fun fact. Okay I actually have two but anyway fun fact number one um, and this I learned this while reading the book was when do you so where was the first shot of World War One fired? Oh, I have no idea. I'm assuming somewhere in Europe. It was in Melbourne. 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 Yes, Melbourne. Melbourne. So the first shot. I mean, so not, not been... Arch, you know, the Archduke Ferdinand or whatever his name was no, who got yeah. shot in. So he got no? shot, yeah, over there. And yeah. but but that was the thing that instigated the war. So war had not been declared 
obviously oh, until clearly. after okay. that shot. Right. Uh, then war was declared, but no one had shot anyone until war was declared, <laughs> and the first shot is in yeah. Melbourne. Yes. Who shot who? Um, <laughs> who did we shoot? Well, Australia shot a um, ship called SS Faults, which was a um, German ship that was in <gasps> our waters. But it was just a warning shot to say stop, which oh, they did. A shot across the bow, so to speak. Sh- it was a shot across the bow and it landed. There you go. Years. Yes, in that's Melbourne. exactly right. In Melbourne. And who knew? Yep, fun fact number two. I just want to okay. give you fun fact number two. So that was right. at Fort Nippian. In Fort Nepean in Port Phillip, south of Melbourne. Okay. Um, so fun fact number two, where was the first shot of World War Two fired? Jeez, you really covered some territory in this conversation. Um, well, I, I mean, I'm going to say again, I'm going to say, I don't know, somewhere in Europe, and you're going to say, no, Al, you're wrong, aren't you? Because <laughs> that's, right. that's where this the pattern of this conversation seems to be going. So let's do it, shall we? Okay. I don't know, Val, somewhere in Europe. No, Al, you're wrong. <laughs> Gasp. Oh, no. I'm shocked. <laughs> it was fired by the same gun in Melbourne. No. What? Yes. We're so we, had, we got in first in two world wars. Yes, yes. We're high achievers. Yes. That's insane. Really? I know, I know. So Was it the same uh, gun? The same gun, yeah. Was there I've another a... shot across the bowels? Is that what we did? I actually don't know that one oh. because that this one this book is about World War One. Okay. I don't know. But okay. uh, James wow. did reveal those t- that that's that fun fact. See, um, this, the things you learn whilst listening to So You Want to Be a Riser <laughs> podcast. Like who would ever have imagined that that's where we would be going? Oh, Actually, Ooh. you know, I forgot to say something too. Can I just say yes. something? Just because no. I'm excited by this yes. conversation reminded no. me that I was actually excited earlier this week again. I've had two levels of excitement this, this okay. week. Okay, yeah. Which well. is unusual for me, right? So let's just take a moment to take consider moment. that aim for okay is one thing, but, yeah. bit, you know, bits of excitement about yes. like learning where the first shots of the wars were. But yes. I also on another level of excitement received my first proof co- copy of <gasps> the Firestar. Oh, my how could God. I? How do I forget these things? Like how? how? How do I forget these things? That must be more um, than okay. Oh, that was – do you know the weird thing about it? Like let's just <laughs> – I'm such a dag. Mm. I was at the post office and I was complaining okay. to the woman behind the counter because I'm quite friendly with my, po- my post office staff because I'm there so often, right? <laughs> so I was in there and every time I go in there they go, oh, you've got a package. Oh, let's guess it's probably a book, right? <laughs> Every We do this constantly. Like this is the kind of level of exciting conversation yes. I have. See, hashtag aim for okay. Yes. And so I'm in the post office and I get there and she's got two um, two packages for me and they're both, I don't know if you've noticed recently, but mm. there are um, there's a, a new type of packaging that comes with books these days, particularly from some of the bigger online sellers, mm-hmm. and it's massive. Have you have you noticed this? Oh, like, and there's like one a, tiny book in a giant box? One tiny book yeah, in yeah. either a giant box or mm. that sort of wrap, that it's that paper wrap thing that's got like heaps and heaps of excess on either side of the tiny book. Anyway, yes. so we're having this conversation, and I, I do have a point to this, so please stick with me. Mm-hmm. We're having this conversation about the ridiculous amounts of excess, um, yes. you know, packaging, and I'm walking. And so I said to her, look, would you mind 
removing, like I can see the books are not that big. Would you mind just taking, because of course no one can touch anything, so I had to ask her to take the packaging off for me. Would you mind removing the packaging from these ridiculous, you know, parcels that I've got here? And so she took one off and it was was some books that I had ordered for Book Boy Junior, so we cheered because I'd been waiting months for them because of the, you know, postal, everything's taking longer. And then she took she took the second packaging off and I nearly fell over in the post office. I was like, oh, my God. And she said, oh, look, it's new books by you, Alice. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was so my proof cool. copies. So I'm in the post office carrying on like a total pork chop in front of the entire, you know, entire. I love that. I That's know. so cool. That so you've wasn't... got them in your hot little hand. I have. And I am going to give one of them away. I am <gasps> going to give away a signed proof. Um, I haven't exactly decided how I'm going to do this yet or what, what format this giveaway might take. So it's, um, I'm thinking it's probably going to go out through my next newsletter, mm-hmm. which will be my June newsletter. So if you would like to be one of the first readers ever yes. of the Firestar and a signed proof copy, I'm thinking that you need to be on my newsletter list. So that's where I'm going at the moment. So if you're not on my newsletter list and you would like to get your hot little hands on that book, um, I think now's the time to sign up, baby. And where did they sign up? Oh, yeah, good point. AlisonTate.com. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's AlisonTate.com forward slash newsletter. But if you go to AlisonTate.com, you should find the newsletter sign up there somewhere. Awesome. And you too can have a paroxysm in the post office <laughs> when you receive your copy. All right. We have, speaking of competitions, we have a competition for you. We have three copies of the book Pedantic to give away by Ross Petrus and Catherine Petrus. This is such a cool book. It's right up my alley. Um, A compendium of 100 words and phrases smart people use. (laughs) That's not why it's up my alley. Seriously? (laughs) Honestly, talk about (laughs) <laughs> Hashtag aim for I think I'm great. So, um, like when, he, when I saw the title, I thought, yes, this is totally up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, even if they only kind of, sort of, secretly don't know what they mean, with pithy definitions and fascinating etymologies to solidify their meanings, language gurus Ross Petrus and Catherine Petrus. Can you imagine their, like, dinner conversation? Oh, I, <laughs> I, I have no words. Explain all of the words and phrases smart people should know. Covering the worlds of science, the arts and philosophy, they explore broad topics like quantum physics and ontology and more specific ones like shibboleth and bête noire. From Latin phrases we often hear and read, like prima facie and so on, to those pesky words that have entered our vocabularies from other language uh, languages like Sturm und Drang, this book will inform and delight even the most pernickety word nerds. So if you want your copy, <laughs> enter the and competition. And surely you are, you are all like just hanging, hanging. for this one. I bet, and then I bet you two is. can have conversations with Val. Yeah. It'll be great. <laughs> I bet everyone's hanging to enter and they that are. will be proven by the number of entries. So just go to writerscentercomau slash win to win one of three copies of Pedantic by Ross Petrus and Catherine Petrus. That's writerscentercomau slash win. Entries close on the 18th of May. Now, ow. Oh, Fo- following I, on. 
Following, following on, on from that, I now have to brace myself. <sighs> okay. Don't Are you ready? It. Are I'm you ready a, for the word of I the week? I am ready for the word of the week, Valerie. Okay, this Primed. is really cool. Okay. Appurtenance. Appurtenance. That's A-P-P-U-R-T-E-N-A-N-C-E. Appurtenance. Ha! Ha! One of my favourites. I use it all the time. I have no idea what that means. Okay. Um, It sounds like it has something to do with appearance or demeanour, but it's not. According to not. No. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means something accessory to another and, uh, sorry, something that's an accessory to another more important thing, like an adjunct. Right. So you might refer to an outhouse as an appurtenance to the main house. Mm. You might. Mm. You could. Yeah. Like Robin is an appurtenance to Batman. Oh, so he's not as important. Well. So it's like a sidekick. It's yeah, just a can, posh word for a sidekick. It could be, kind of. Well, because so, there are entire Batman movies with no Robin. So who is the appurtenance in our Val and Al conversations? Oh, oh we- <laughs> controversial. Are you Batman or are you Robin? <laughs> I don't think we think We might leave that for that other people right to think now. about. <laughs> <laughs> so try and use that in a sentence, everyone, yes, this week. please do. Please do. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week, which is Rick Held. And um, I had a great time talking to Rick. He's had many years' experience as a television screenwriter um, and has written for dramas like A Place to Call Home and Pack to the Rafters and so on. But he has released his debut novel called Night Lessons in Little Jerusalem, which is a World War II story inspired by his father's memoirs. And it's... um, and uh, it's a fascinating jumping off point that he's used to get into the story of this novel. So let's have a chat to Rick Held. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rick. Valerie, it's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations on your book, Night Lessons in Little Jerusalem. Now, for those people who haven't had a chance to grab hold of this novel yet, can you tell our listeners what it's about? Okay. It is the story of a teenage Jewish boy uh, who's 16 years old, who is living in a city which has been occupied by the fascist forces of Romania and Germany, and who is facing uh, the possible uh, transportation of himself and his family to a concentration camp. He Uh, discovers that uh, uh, his employer in a weaving mill where he works uh, is uh, is responsible for providing names for further transportations. He also Mm -hmm. discovers that one of his employers is having an illicit affair. He uses that information to protect himself from and his family from being transported to the camps Mm. and but the complication is that the woman who's having the affair is someone he becomes involved with. Mm. And so the fact that he's, so he has two competing forces, his relationship with the woman 
yep. who's a Romani woman, and his desire to save himself and his parents from the, the concentration camp. Now, this is inspired by a true story from the memoirs of your father, is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you use that as a jumping off point and how much of that is included in this story? Well, to say it's a jumping off point is actually a very good description because um, that, that situation I described without giving away too much of the plot mm. is exactly what uh, happened in, in real life. I found this little nugget of, you know, narrative gold in his memoirs when I read them. And uh, they stuck with me for like 20 years. Like, oh, my God, this is an amazing situation. You know, basically mm. you are instrumental in supporting an affair um, which could collapse at any moment uh, and, and therefore lead to your death. Um, and so many things could go wrong. It was an incredible um dramatic situation and mm. that is the and that became the leaping off point for it in real life nothing actually did go wrong for my father mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was an incredibly bold uh, proposition that he put to his employer to to uh to um play a role in supporting the affair um incredibly bold i mean you know his employer might have said to himself straight away uh, i think it's better you don't know this and i'm just going to have you taken away Mm. could could have had him killed you know at the snap of his fingers so Mm. it was an incredible situation and that is the true life story of how my father actually avoided being transported to concentrate and his parents to a concentration camp Mm. and so you you've known this story for 20 years why now why did you decide then to write this now look it was a story that I mulled over. It was, the, it was the, the potential basis for a story that I mulled over for a very long time. And I actually took a break from writing because I used to write, I wrote mostly for television for 30 odd years. Mm. Um, and I had actually not written for television for a while. And I'd become a little bit disillusioned with, um, you know, I'd, I'd, taken, I'd taken a step back for writing for television. I'd enjoyed it in, in a lot, but I felt like taking a break from it and from writing. Uh, but that story just couldn't, wouldn't leave my mind. And mm. I took it out of the bottom drawer and I decided to revisit it. And suddenly it just started, it's funny how these things just have at their time. And all the ideas for how I could develop that premise and what I could do with it and with the themes that I could explore um, started to come to life for me. And um, I started to roll with that. And uh, originally it was, in fact, going to be something I thought that I would do as a movie, but by uh, a series of completely fortuitous circumstances, it came to the attention of the person, Vanessa Radnidge, who turned out to be my publisher, who I'd never met, who got my phone number, rang me up and said, I love this story. Would you consider writing it as a novel? Wow. And so can you give us a little bit of idea of the timeline? So obviously it had been mulling in your brain for decades, but mm-hmm. when did you start think actually putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard? And once that started, what kind, how long did it take for a first draft that you were happy with? The first draft took me, um, uh, let's see where we were doing, the first draft took me about nine months. It actually mm-hmm. was a year from when I signed the uh, the contract with Heshed to delivering the first draft. There was a few months break because unfortunately my 
uh, one of my sisters passed away um, uh, and also I then had to have unexpectedly surgery uh, for a complication, a carotid artery that was blocked. And uh, so it all got stopped. And that was an interesting part of the process because when I went back to it to sort of get momentum back into it, I thought, mm. look, I'm going to read what I've done from the start. Well, you could say that was a good thing or a bad thing, but the result was I thought, oh, gosh, really, this can be better. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went back and started reworking. I virtually did a second draft of oh. the first half of the book. And at a certain point, I thought, Rick, are you just overthinking this? What are you doing? But I pushed on, and literally about a week after that, it all fell into place well. And I'm mm. really glad I did that process, that I had the break and came back to it. I really regret the reasons that I had to take the break. Um, mm. But uh, then I rolled on. So the actual writing time was nine, about nine months. And so you get this contract from Vanessa and you already had your premise because it was based in fact. Did you already know when you started writing the what was going to happen, what, your, your plot, your, your narrative arc, or did you let that unfold as you wrote? I did have a very good idea of what the narrative arc was. I had written a 20-page outline. Um, mm. Of, of the story, so I actually knew where it, where it was going. I knew that it was really going to become a story about a relationship between a teenage boy who was naive and romantic and had a lot of lessons to learn about sex, relationships and power and someone from a very different background, an illiterate, marginalised Romany woman who was disempowered and trapped in a relationship upon which her life depended. So I knew that that was the core, the, the, the core of it, and I knew that we needed to de- I needed to develop a relationship between them. It wasn't until I started to write it that I thought about um, amalgamating my father's character with that of his first cousin, who was an, uh, a, essentially a musical genius who went on to conduct in, in Australia, be the director of the Australian Ballet and conducted internationally and what have you. Music became the means by which those two characters bond. Mm. And so that developed in the writing and then other things happened as well, which were, which I really enjoyed. I mean, when you write for TV, you, you know, you, which I've done a lot of, you've probably seen that in my mm. CV, you write very much within um uh, a formularized uh, committee driven yes. thing where you know you've agreed to write this that's what you go away and write and that's what you deliver and if you don't you're in deep deep doo doo so <laughs> <laughs> but on this one i decided to actually do it very organically i didn't do a chapter plan for example i knew where the story was going generally and i allowed myself to be surprised along the way so there's a few points in the story where i thought I, I, so in answer to your question, I knew what the beginning, middle and end was, but how I got there changed a little bit in the writing and that was incredibly enjoyable. Right. So did you just say that you did not do a chapter plan? I did not do a chapter plan. Right, because I find that very surprising for a screenwriter who is, as you say, so used to knowing, well, this is going to happen before the first commercial break or this is going to happen before at the end of Act 2 where it is it is so clearly delineated and you're so used to it. Did you – were you craving not to, to work within those parameters or did you just 
how did you approach it? Well, I've always found those parameters, they're very useful. You know, mm. it's, like, it's, 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 have, it's like writing by a blueprint. And yes. it can be a very useful way to work. And it has all sorts of useful things in TV in terms of production, because all the production people from uh, all the people who are planning production know what's going to happen. So, it, And it can be a useful blueprint, but it also can be a bit of a straitjacket. And as I said, I'd taken a bit of a break from writing, and what I, when I came back to it, what I was doing was rediscovering the joy of writing. When I started out as a much younger person wanting to be a writer, it was because it gave me so much pleasure to do mm. it. It became a career, and... And I don't regret it. I've had a great career that I've really enjoyed. But you were writing on contract all the time. Mm. This was something I was doing for the pleasure of it. And I decided that I was going to allow myself to fly by the seat of my pants a bit. Yeah, right. Wow. <laughs> and it was actually, and it was very liberating. Very yes. Li very liberating. So can you just give listeners just a little bit of a brief potted career history so far, just so that we can have an understanding of your, your background until this point? I started as a trainee script editor in the early 1980s in Melbourne uh, with a company called Crawford Productions, which at that time was the <laughs> premier production company. Uh, for there, was, there was Crawford's and Grundy's, and Crawford's, yeah. was, Crawford's was the quality. <laughs> the Sullivans. <laughs> yeah, the Sullivans, Flying Doctors, yeah. mm -hmm. Carson's Law. Uh, Love Carson's Law. Oh, that's good. I worked on that. <laughs> so I worked on all those shows. Then I went freelance and I wrote for Crawford's um, for a number of different shows. I've moved to Sydney in the late 90s and uh, wound up forging a very good relationship with Channel 7. I went on staff for a few number of years working on All Saints. Um, and then I also worked on Pack to the Rafters and uh, a play, probably the last show I wrote was A Place to Call Home. Mm. It's funny, with A Place to Call Home, I, I do a different, uh, another podcast on photography where the bulk of our listeners are actually from America and Europe and we get messages from them saying, oh, you sound like just from A Place to Call Home. <laughs> <laughs> Such a bizarre thing to say. Well, but anyway. Well, created that show, would be delighted to hear that. <laughs> so... You've written a lot for um, television and so you had to probably change gears because, you know, if you're writing an episode for something like A Place to Call Home or, or one of those, it might take you, what, four weeks or what would the, generally be the time frame for something like that versus, you know, nine months? Well, as I say, it's, it's very structured. So you get um, uh, probably you, you, you start with a, a script meeting where you sit around with people and everybody works by committee. Mm. Uh, how, what you, and you, you agree what you're going to write and then to prove it you go home and you write up the scene breakdown the document we talked about that gets you get maybe a week to write that um, then uh, you wait in the week you it comes back with notes on it you know people have had ideas or you didn't quite get that right or they've changed their mind whatever and you then get mm, usually about uh, th three or four weeks to write the first draft Mm. It's a while since I've done it now. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, oh, it might be a bit longer. It's somewhere between. Do you know, I can't remember exactly now. <laughs> between three three and five weeks to write the first draft, mm. 
Mm. Um, and then again, you wait until you get feedback on that from your script editor and other people have input. And then you get usually a couple of weeks to write the second draft. The whole process takes about 10 weeks. Mm. But the actual writing process is all up about six weeks. Right. And so when you are – so script writing is such a collaborative process and, as you say, um, it's done by committee. When you were writing this draft, did you feel – compelled at all to get validation from someone or a committee or <laughs> since that's what you were so used to? Uh, I started with tremendous confidence because mm. the way the whole thing had happened, as I described, it was quite, you know, almost magical. You know, it, mm. it, 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 it's, it's a once, it's, it's a rare thing in a career where someone rings you up and says, please write us a novel. Mm. Um, the next stage was I wrote a few chapters and sent them off to uh, Vanessa and said, is this any good because I've never written a novel? <laughs> and she said, I love it. I love the style of the way you're writing. It's terrific. So, yeah, let's mm. sign you up. So that gave me great confidence. You know, I'd written five chapters. I had a bit of momentum going. It was great. But then there were moments when I started to go, oh, oh. Really, I'm not sure what I should do here. So you know, I had I had my I had my my dark nights. I had my, a, a couple of sleepless nights, and yeah, it was a lonely journey, and I did feel like I was climbing a mountain by myself. Uh, <laughs> but what? But what kind of things did you think were you doubting? Because I imagine that structure would not be one of them. Because you are so, you, you know, your screenwriting is all about structure. What kinds of things were you thinking in the middle of the night? Oh, is this working? Oh, well, what things? For example, um, I don't want to give away the plot. That's all. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Were there, you know, should this relationship change at this point? I mean, right. these are the, you know, look, ultimately I, I, I just reminded myself, I think the important thing to say here is mm. that this process began with I would like to get back to enjoying writing. Yeah. So when I started to get a little bit stressed and questioned whether I was doing, making the right choices, I just took a moment, breathed, and said to myself, what would you like to do next here in the plot? Mm. You're mm. supposed to be enjoying this. I had That's to tap myself approach. on the shoulder and say, hang on, you're doing this to enjoy it. Yeah. Don't second guess the reader. Don't second guess things. What would you like to do? And with that in mind, there were a couple of points where I thought I knew what was going to happen next, mm. and I just flipped the card over. And that was great. That was like, hey, I didn't see that coming. And it's great as a writer, you know, you've got a very good idea. You've got a sort of a map of the story. As I said, I had a 20-page outline. Um, but it, it's a bit of a dead process if there can't be moments in the writing of it where you say, hey, I didn't see that coming. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah. And so most debut novelists don't get their contract before they've written anything. <laughs> so you, you, you did have a contract and therefore you knew that there was a home for it. So on a practical level, you then had to go write this manuscript. What kind of um, goalposts or milestones, besides, of course, finishing the whole thing, mm. did you give yourself in order to make sure you kept some kind of forward momentum? Did you have any targets or anything like that? Uh, look, 
I tried to get uh, – I discovered – okay, first off, I'd actually not written in Word. I wrote and I've always written in a program oh. called Final Draft. So yes, whenever I put words on the page, it's something called Final Draft. Yes. And, of course, I've used words to write – Word documents to write Word documents, letters, what have you. But I'd never actually written a manuscript. Well, I oh. discovered there's a thing called the word counter. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I didn't I was even there. So I started setting myself goals that a certain number of words had to be written each week. And I had no problem with actually structuring my time. I mean, all those years of working in TV and mm-hmm. working as a freelancer, I had the discipline of being at my desk, of, you know, watching the news in the morning and having the coffee ready by 10 and, mm-hmm. you know, and being awake and doing three hours and then having lunch and going for a walk and coming back. And so in terms of how to structure my time, that was no problem. I'd done that. But I tried, I then sort of set myself the word counter goal. And uh, my editor, by the way, was, uh, my, my publisher, by the way, was fantastic. When I first got the contract, um, it said, uh, it, it, it designated the number of words that the book needed to be. Mm. Ex- this number or more. Mm. And I just had this instinct. I said, I called her up and I said, I've got this feeling, I mean, you know I've never written a novel, but I've got this feeling it might, it's a very intimate, tight story, and it might not be that long. Is Mm. that a problem? She was wonderful. I mean, she's been wonderful all the way through. She just said, Rick, I don't want you to be writing something where the whole time you're looking at the word counter. That was my first, that was the first time I'd heard that there was a word counter. Oh, I don't, I don't <laughs> want you to be looking at the word counter the whole time. So we'll adjust the contract and just say approximately this many words. And she reduced it by 10,000. Reduced it by 10,000, took all the pressure off me. But still, by then, I'd heard of the word counter. So that, <laughs> <laughs> so I tried not to look at it, but every now and then you sort of put the, the, the cursor down the bottom and you go, how many words have I done? Oh, yeah, okay, good, right, okay, good. <sighs> That's great. So you, you, you told us a little bit about your writing day where you wrote, for three, you know, start by 10, wrote for three hours, had some lunch, go for a walk. Tell us about the end of the day. I'd love to hear the whole writing ritual, the oh, whole okay. writing routine. I, I just enjoyed it. I did it. I'd end the day. I'd end the day and. Uh, but when would you end I, the day? I, I, oh, I usually finish. Actually, I would write pretty late, maybe around mm. about six or seven o'clock. Right. I'm, I lived alone. Uh, I live alone, uh, so I finish about six or around six or seven. But I take a nice break. I've always found it's a good idea not to do just a continuous burst mm. of six, six or seven, like six or seven hour days in a six, seven hour day in a row. Take mm. a breather, go back. I think three, you know, three to four hour bursts is about the maximum to get good to get some good quality down. And so after six o'clock, did you, you know, put it aside or were you the sort of person who was going to tinker at night? No, I put it aside. That's I disciplined of you too. <laughs> that is a bit, but trust me, later on, I did plenty of tinkering. Right. <laughs> I did plenty of tinkering. And when I'd finished, delivered the first draft um, of it, uh, it, I was very, very chuffed and flattered that my publisher and the editor who I got to meet Rebecca Allen, fantastic to work with. 
um, both just loved it and they were ready to like, right, so let's, let's edit it. I'm like, um, I think I made a second draft. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And I think I actually need to go to Chernobyl, the city where it's set, because I've never actually been there and I don't know why I need to go there. I mean, obviously, this is a bit of a personal odyssey for me when I've never been to this city where my father grew up, where the story's set, when else in my life am I going to do it? Mm. And I have this instinct that it's actually going to, I don't know what changes it's going to bring, but I think it's going to bring changes. And I wanted it to be, although I was writing a work of fiction inspired by fact, I wanted it to be incredibly accurate and Mm. authentic. And so they were totally supportive. It meant adjusting the schedule, the delivery schedule. Oh, my God, really? Yep. (laughs) Yep. Uh, But they totally got it, and I went there, and it was really amazing. The city was beautiful, by the way. My dad had told me he never wanted to go back because the Russians, who became part of the USSR after the war, after Mm -hmm. the the Soviet Union, he said that they destroyed it. I thought that it would literally be, you know, buildings would have been torn down. What it really meant was that it had been neglected. Like, you know, those sort of country towns that all wished that they'd had the money to build the new municipal buildings, but they didn't. And then then 50 years later they realised, thank God we didn't do that. We've got a historic township. Mm. Well, Chernobyl is like that, and it's this beautiful city. It's magical. It's a a 600-year-old city that was known as Little Vienna, that became a jewel in the crown of the Viennese Empire, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I went there and I was spending all my days walking the city up and down to all the locations that I put in the book. I discovered where the ghetto was, literally the streets where the ghetto was. Literally, I found my father's house. I went inside it. Oh, wow. I went to... um, my guide who I had, who I told, explained to her the story and how the heroine is, uh, works in a brothel. She said, oh, I can show you the two most famous brothels that <laughs> were during the war and all these amazing things happened. And then at night uh, I'd go back to my Airbnb that I'd rented um, and I'd be writing the second draft whilst I was there. And how significantly did the second draft change from the first draft and what was the difference? The story didn't change, mm-hmm. but the authenticity of it and the and, mm-hmm. and details and richness. You know, it was only when I got there that I discovered that I was able to answer questions like, did they use coal or wood mm. in the up? Um, in the original draft of it, I had there are there's a I don't want to give away the plot, but there's a section there's a part of the story where uh, the hero of the story, young Toldy, um, needs to sneak into a building at night. Mm. I had him sneaking in by back stairs. They don't have back stairs in any of the buildings. Mm. Now, no reader, you know, 99% of readers in the world assuming the world gets to read this, mm-hmm. would, would, not, would not know that. But I wanted it to be absolutely authentic. Yes. So I rewrote those sections. I was also be, was able to give a much richer descriptions and details. And the net result was that the 10,000 words less that we had put into the contract came back. 
It was ten. <laughs> the second draft was ten thousand words longer than the first draft. Mm. So now you've written this novel. You have a career of screenwriting behind you. Have you got the taste now? Is this your thing now? Oh, I'd love it to be. I'd love it mm. to be. Um, I think it might depend a little on whether the first one does well, but um, I certainly have enjoyed the process incredibly. But are you already writing your second novel? Um, I, I haven't got into the thick of it, but I've got two, and I'm trying to decide which one I want to go with. Mm. Mm. Remember the question that you should be asking yourself, which one are you going to enjoy? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. Very good because I've actually pitched it a couple of people and they've said, I like this one. I said, yeah, but that one, I think that one is mm. going to allow me to explore stuff I'd really like to explore. That's and really have, cool. And as much as I've enjoyed writing this, the, the one that I've done, I really would like to write a novel not set, um, uh, what, what are we talking, uh, 80 years ago with issues like, is it wood or coal in the stove? <laughs> you just cannot get answers to. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. So um, finally, what is are your top three tips for aspiring writers who would like to have their novel out one day? Oh, okay. Um, pick a subject. Pick a pick a well. Pick a story that. Pick a subject that really fascinates you that you can be passionate about. Um, create characters that are multidimensional and surprising. And enjoy, enjoy the process. Enjoy the process. It is so important to do that. Do not be writing something. You can Google if you like and you'll find interesting answers to the question how to, how to but ultimately it is a journey that you take and you have to enjoy that journey. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Rick. Valerie, it's been a huge pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There you go, Rick Held. So this brings us to the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week till we chat again? Al? What am I doing? Oh, see, this is such a loaded question these days, isn't it? I'll be hashtag aiming for okay. Um, mm. But I'm just, I'm, I'm still trying to write a new thing, which I'm really actually finding so much more of a struggle for me than, than things have been for a long time. And it's not because I don't want to do it. It's because I'm actually, I will sit down to do it and I'm finding it's like, you know, normally I have... I have uh, sections where I'm getting down thousands of words mm. in short spaces of time and then I will have sections where I'm wading through concrete. And we've talked about this before, like this is the process. 
I'm just feeling at the moment like everything is wading through concrete. Like my word counts for every day are like 200 and it's very mm. unusual for me to be in that situation. Mm. Um, and I just think it's a concentration thing. I'm just really struggling. It's not that I'm not making the time to do it. It's just that when I do sit down, I'm finding that I'm not getting, the momentum is not there for me. So I'm just going with it. I'm doing 200 words at a time. It's all fine. Um, but I am really hoping that it sort of, you know, picks up pace for me and I get more momentum going on the story. So I'll be doing that. I'm still hashtag write a book with Al, 200 words a day. Feel free to join me. Um, so I'm doing that and I am uh, just getting on with it, really, the rest Sounds, of it. Okay, yes. Supervi- supervising <laughs> school. Oh, oh yes, yeah, school. Maybe Fun. that's why I'm struggling to concentrate. <laughs> Fun. Anyway, what about you? What are you doing? I am reading the book Pray by L.A. Larkin. And uh, for those of you who are interested in joining a Facebook Live where I'll be chatting to L.A. Larkin, also known as Louisa Larkin, who is a crime and thriller writer and also a teacher of crime and thriller novels, that is going to be at 11 a.m. on Sunday the 17th of May. And uh, just join us um, uh, on Facebook and join in the conversation. Uh, the Guardian has said, in Larkin, Michael Crichton has an apparent. So that's pretty high praise. Um, so I'm really looking forward to my chat with L.A. Larkin. So where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwannabearwriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.